You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality, where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio. So hi everyone and welcome one, welcome all to another episode of our show, Changing Reality. So for all of you who don't know, and this is your first time tuning into the show, where have you been all year? But Changing Reality is a show on WQHS Radio, the student-run radio here at Penn, that basically features phenomenal people from all walks of life who are essentially changing their own reality. So through this show, we'll be hanging out and interviewing phenomenal people from social change makers, entrepreneurs, business owners, industry leaders, thought leaders, to even artists, musicians, and inspiring individuals from all across the world and from here at Penn Campus. And today's episode is extra special because it's part of our theme this month of interviewing some of the phenomenal professors from Wharton and Penn. So we get to hear their inspiring stories on how they are changing their own reality and changing the reality of all of us on campus as well, while we hopefully uncover some nuggets of wisdom that we can apply in our own lives too. And I wanted to do this show simply because I feel like there are a lot of people out there who do phenomenal things and make waves in the lives of those around them. And I'm super passionate about learning how they ended up where they are today, how they managed to uncover their own paths in a sense, so that hopefully from their experiences, we can learn the same. And personally, to show you how much I believe in the power that these stories hold, in a sense of the power that these conversations can actually generate, I actually founded and run a youth movement called Ascendance back at home in Malaysia, where I'm from, that collaborates with not just our own Malaysian Ministry of Education, but over 28 countries to help provide an alternative education platform for any student who wants to change their reality. So we work with students from all the way to elementary, to college in a sense, through various sessions, programs, and even experiential learning activities that help them discover what they love doing, learn about themselves and the world around them, and start their own careers while they're still in school that not only impacts themselves, but those around them as well. And to date, we've been fortunate to work with over 35,000 students, 970 communities, and have incubated countless number of student-run projects and social enterprises run by students aged 8 to 25 years old, helping everyday students change their reality. And the reason we're able to do all of that is because of stories, because of kind individuals who have been willing to share their time, their experience, their expertise, sharing how they actually uh, crafted their own space in this world. And through those experiences, those journeys, that's the essence and the foundation of everything that we've built. And just like that, I hope that this show is that same platform for you. So that as you listen to these episodes, as you listen to these conversations, you too can begin forming the life that you want to live and find out the different roadmaps that can get you to there. And hopefully, if we can, we'll be able to answer all of your burning questions about what happens next, where you're going next, in a sense, and what you can do to get there. So if you have anything that you want to talk about specifically, make sure to remind us in the comments below. Make sure to reach out and tell us what you want to talk about too. And as best as we can, we'll try to make that happen. So on to today's episode. Today we have a phenomenal speaker who is a professor of finance at the Wharton School here at the University of Pennsylvania. His research spans corporate finance, banking, and asset pricing, as well as he has investigated the determination of corporate capital structure and payout policies and their impact on corporate investments and equity returns. He's also studied a range of other things from pricing, design, to renegotiation of debt instruments, and even more recently, the performance of collateral loan obligations and their implication for the risk to the financial system. And his research is award-winning, literally. He has won several awards and many academies from, uh, including um, two Bradle Prize Awards for distinguished papers published in the Journal of Finance, a Jensen Prize for the best paper in corporate finance and organizations. And with many other um, academies under his belt, we have with us the amazing, none other than Professor Crawford here as our speaker for today. So without further ado, let's welcome him to our virtual stage. Hi, Professor. How are you today? Hi, Harsha. I'm doing well. Well, thank you so much for joining us on our show, in a sense. As I said, we've had a very exciting month because of finals and everything. So I guess the first question is, are finals as stressful as a period for you as a professor as it is for us as a student? <laughs> Probably not, but they are not stress-free, that's for sure. Really? Okay. Yeah. I 
I'm going to meander and go dive into this question for a second. T tell us what is the life of a professor in the finals, like, I don't know, period in a sense. Well, uh, okay, so a couple things. First, it takes quite a bit of effort and thought to crafting a final that accomplishes the goals we want it to accomplish, right? I mean, it's, it's not easy to write a test. It actually takes quite a bit of time, um, a lot more time than it takes to solve it, it turns out. So we, we, we got to get the test right. Um, then we've got to grade it accurately. And if, you know, if the class is really large and it's, you know, there's some subjectivity associated with the answers, right? It takes a long time to grade it and to grade it accurately. So, you know, it's certainly nowhere near as stressful for us as it is for you. I do remember when I was a student and, you know, I would get a little bit stressed and nervous on exams, but, but it is not stress-free for sure. We will keep that in mind as we're answering, I guess, the final couple of papers and just like send some thoughts and first to your professors for a change. I know you're always expecting their well wishes. We'll send them back as well, you know, like you've got a game too. <laughs> and sorry, I just thought it'd be fun to open with that. And I like how you said you remember how it was like being a student, uh, like in our position in a sense, I feel like uh, being a student is extremely traumatizing of an experience. Um, I know adults who still have nightmares that they're late for exams. So <laughs> I've got, so throwing the question back to you in a sense. Tell us a little bit about how you chose to go into this field of, of, of finance and everything. Was this something you knew all the way back when you were in high school, deciding what to do next? I know you did a bachelor in, in arts, in economics specifically, so you probably know a lot of what the Wharton students are going through on a day-to-day basis today. But were making those decisions easy for you in choosing what to study, or were you as lost and confused as the most of us were? Yeah, I was probably more lost and confused than the average. I, I was definitely more lost and confused than the average Penn student. That There's no question. I, I was not a great student, certainly in high school. I I just kind of got by on my ability to test well, so I, I could do well on exams, which seemed to pull me through. And then I wasn't sure about going to college, but, but all my friends went to college, so I figured I didn't want to be alone at home. So I'll go to college, you know, just to be by my friends. And, you know, I sort of floundered in college for a year or two until, I, you know, I met another good friend of mine. And we got very competitive with one another in in everything we did, whether it was sports or academics. And so I decided to major in economics and, you know, did reasonably well, although I, I was in college for a long time. I, I wasn't in any hurry to leave. Uh, so I was there for, God, I was, I was in college for almost six years, just sort of plodding along, playing a lot of volleyball and golf and, and some surfing. And, and then, you know, I guess to come bring it back to what you were originally asking, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I had no idea. I didn't know if I want to be in finance. I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, I thought I thought academia might be a possibility because when I was an undergraduate, so this was back in the late 80s, early 90s, I remember reading somewhere that um, uh, the education department was was projecting a dearth of professors and faculty in the future and in, in the you know early 2000s and so i thought oh well you know supply and demand i'm an economics student if there's going to be a lot of demand for this maybe that might be a good field to go into i don't know so i kind of had the idea of being a professor in the back of my mind but i was never a great student so i, I never really thought about it all that much Honestly, I'm very comforted by this answer. Thank you for, for this answer. And I feel like so many students are, are, are going to sleep better at night today, knowing that, that there is hope for them in the future, in a sense. When, when do you think was the moment that, or that you felt, hmm, maybe this is like you really concretely felt like, okay, this is the direction I want to go in, in a sense. Was there ever a moment or did, or did one day you're like, I'm just so good at this, I can't not do this anymore, in a sense? So... I remember enjoying economics in college. It was in part because, you know, I was very competitive with my, my, my now closest friend. And, um, but I, I did well in it. And uh, I started to care about school a bit more and doing well. And I got to know the faculty um, pretty well because I did well in, in coursework. But I didn't, wanna, I didn't wanna go to graduate school. So after I graduated from undergrad, 
I did consulting in the energy space. And I quickly realized that while I enjoyed my job, I, I liked it. I just didn't find it intellectually stimulating, at least not for me. And so I always thought, you know, I'm going to go back to graduate school, but I'm not ready to go back to school yet. So I'll just work for a few years and I'll, I'll go back eventually. So, so I knew after a year or so of consulting, not even a year after about six months of consulting, that I wanted to go back to school and, and get my doctorate in economics and statistics, actually. Um, but I just needed some time and some space to decompress from school. And so hopefully I would be recharged and reinvigorated when I went back. No, nope, that's a good answer. And, and I know many amazingly brilliant people who I think took like five years, six years just before, like, like, like even after leaving high school, because they're like, I can't go back into a classroom right now. But I'm like, I need the space in a sense. And then they ended up being like, like really amazing when, when they got back. And I'm sure you were even better than all of them combined. One, one article that I did read about you is that, that I thought was very relatable to many, many students, not just at Penn and Norton, but probably around the world was that you mentioned that part of like, like one of the things that happened was you actually had lots of student loans back when you were um, a college student in a sense. For many students, so I know personally who, who live with that anxiety of having student loans uh, and, and with nightmares of it every single day. How was it like for you as an undergrad in that position? I mean, obviously you 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 turned that around real quick and today you're, you're the expert in finance in a sense. But how was it like as a student from that point of view? In a sense? So, yeah, so, so as an undergraduate, I was really, for, well, I was fortunate for, out of unfortunate circumstances. But so as an undergraduate, I actually received grants, uh, all grants. I didn't have any loans as an undergrad. My, my parents had wow. divorced in, uh, you know, when I was in high school. And um, so I, I didn't have money coming from my family when I was an undergrad. So I, I was fortunate enough to get grants to help me with college. And, and then I just worked several jobs. So that, that was an issue. But I, I had to take out loans to go to graduate school. And so, uh, you know, I just assume I take out a loan and, um, you know, I'll, I'll TA when I'm in graduate school and that will help you know, pay for every, you know, my needs while in graduate school. So in a nutshell, I took out loans for graduate school. They weren't too large, Cert certainly nothing on the order of what, you know, people, some people are dealing with today after four years of full uh, undergraduate education. But they, you know, so, so they weren't too large. And I was fortunate enough that when I did graduate from graduate school, you know, I got a good job. And I could easily repay those loans very quickly. So I, I was, in some sense, very lucky um, that I didn't step into something that I, a hole I couldn't dig myself out of. Um, but it also made me acutely aware, you know, studying finance of just how lucky I was in some sense. All right. We'll definitely talk a little bit more about that later in a second. But yeah. back to kind of like your, your graduate school life, in a sense, the finance is such a big, I would say, theme in everyone's life, in a sense. You, it's something that we see every day. It's something that works at the micro, at the macro level, that there, that even until today, I think that nobody can truly wrap their head around every aspect of it, in a sense. For you, in a sense, how did you focus or how did you find the thing that you wanted to focus on, either for your dissertation or for your work or, or the, that first, I would say, research project that you had to come up with? How did you discover what was the thing that you wanted to learn more about and really dive into? Sure. So, so I really liked statistics uh, and probability, but wasn't good enough to get a PhD. Uh, <laughs> No, 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 no. So, so I was, I was actually in the economics and statistics departments at, at Berkeley, and I, I became very close with my statistics advisor, my thesis advisor, and he, you know, he he put it very bluntly, uh, you know, you should probably go do economics. You know, statistics isn't going to be your thing, which 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 I actually really appreciated because um, there were some brilliant people in that stat program. Um, so, you know, I I. I really liked statistics and I was good at it from an application standpoint, at least reasonably so. And I always liked finance because there's lots of data and lots of interesting questions, or at least questions in which I was interested. And so I sort of thought the the combination of the two would be 
um, sort of a powerful duo to answer pressing questions in finance from an empirical or applied perspective. And the, the, the faculty at Haas, which was the business school at, or is the business school at Berkeley, was kind enough to sort of let me, uh, you know, engage with them, do all their courses, do a field in finance, even though I was technically an econ student. And so I did my dissertation on a finance topic, um, you know, using what I had learned in statistics and probability. So that's sort of how this all came about, at least in graduate school. No, that's very interesting because, as you said, today I think the idea that, like, 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 I think it it, it leads in a way into the whole like data science courses that you run today and, and kind of like having those elements of statistics of, of kind of like having those elements of economics and also kind of finance all like like into like crafted into something beautiful i think that's a, that that makes a lot of sense just listening to your story in a sense and tell me a little bit about your time like like deciding what to do was it always in your um, like you mentioned you had this vague thought of becoming a, a professor earlier in your undergrad in a sense as you were kind of rounding up your your, your PhD journey and in your uh, postgrad journey, in a sense, was it in the plans to become a professor? In a sense, was this the, the grand plan, or or what did you have in mind at that point? Yeah, it actually wasn't. So when I was in graduate school, you know, I, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I enjoyed being a student. I enjoyed learning, um, but I thought, you know. I, I'll just see what is available when I graduate and, you know, choose. You know, I was very, <laughs> I was unlike 99% of the students in a PhD program who are just, you know, focused on, okay, I'm going to get an academic position and then I'm going to get tenure. And then I, I was more, you know, I just enjoy learning this stuff. I like the applied dimension, you know, I'll, I'll check out the, the private sector and I'll check out you know, the academic sector. And so I, I you know, when I graduated, I, I interviewed, I interviewed for a wide range of jobs, you know, both um, uh, professorships and, you know, business schools, you know, finance faculty, economics faculty and econ departments, statistics faculty and stat departments. And then, you know, I interviewed with asset managers, consulting firms, banks, just I really just kind of wanted to see what people were offering, what was out there and what my opportunities were. And um, what I realized was you can, it, it's much easier to go into academia and if you don't like it or you don't succeed, it's fairly, fairly easy to transition back to the private sector. It's, you really can't go the other way around. So if you go into the private sector and then you want to go into academia, you know, you might be able to get an adjunct position or a teaching position, a lectureship, but getting a, a tenure track faculty position is, is very rare, if, if not impossible, certainly at the elite schools, right? You really need to move into that right from the PhD program because you got to hit the ground running with publications and research visibility. So I figured there was more option value, you know, to bring finance into this discussion by by going into academia and then just kind of seeing how it plays out. And plus, you know, I like to teach and I like to learn. So I figured I wasn't settling anyway. I just thought, yeah, let's give this a shot and see how this academic thing works out. And I can always do other things later. So you really did all of the economic calculations from opportunity cost to. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the demand, all right. That's some of my high school economics for you, but all right, very, very, no, very. Like I, I like that logic. I think it sounds logic to a sense, and and it seemed to pay off. You seem to be amazing right now, so definitely a, a well thought out strategy. Tell me about like you said. You always love teaching and 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 learning in a sense. When you first started um, as a professor, I think you were at Duke. Uh, phenomenal school as well. So definitely a, a testament to your to your amazing abilities. How was it like stepping into the classroom and now addressing a group of, of students in a sense in this field? And how did you kind of come across um, developing that ability to convey this this world of finance and economics and everything to the students in a sense? Was it something that came naturally to you? Or was it something that had to be built over time? So that's a good question. 
I, I always liked teaching because I think deep down, part of me likes to perform. Um, so I, I, I always enjoyed teaching and, and I always liked communicating with people. I just like, I, I like talking to people. Um, and so when I got to Duke, I remember, you know, I taught quite a bit at Berkeley throughout graduate school. I had taught a number of courses, a lot, actually. But when I got to Duke, they, they actually made me co-teach with another faculty member there, a more senior faculty member, an amazing person and now a longtime friend, Alon Brav. And what that meant is I actually had to sit in his class on Mondays and Wednesdays. And then I would teach my class on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I would see how he taught the material and because it was a core course, you know, we wanted to make sure everything was aligned. So I would teach that we taught the same material. So I could see him teach it and I could see how he engaged with the students. And then I could go into the class, have, you know, having that under my belt. And I was very fortunate, despite initially being very reluctant to do it, that I did, uh, they made me do it. Um, because he is an amazing teacher. And so I, I got to watch what he does, what, what he did and how he did it. And I just learned a ton from him. I learned a ton from him. So um, that learning experience coupled with just my desire to engage with people and have these sort of interesting intellectual dialogues um, got me up the learning curve very quickly and just made it a, a very enjoyable process. Yeah. That's lovely. And I think we, we, we alluded to this earlier in that first question, that the life of a professor is so much more busier and I would say tough than we as students imagine. I know that you guys have to juggle between your research and then you present your, your papers or at conferences and then you, you've got all of this other work and then you have to come and see our faces, which probably by then you're like, oh gosh, why? So how do you, so how is it like juggling all of these many different aspects of, of, of this title professor in a sense and, and 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 balance all of them at the same time so so it's it's interesting so first of all certainly speaking for me and probably a majority of my colleagues at, at wharton um I, I really enjoy teaching i view it as a break from research and other duties committee work other service work to the school and the profession so it's a break from that it, you know i get to, it's a change of pace and it's one i really enjoy so um, I look forward to it. Uh, that doesn't mean it's all fun and games, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a lot of work and it can be stressful and you guys are under an enormous amount of pressure and we feel that. Um, but, but I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this. So, so you know, my, my wife who works in the real world, sorry for the air quotes, but <laughs> you know, she has a, she has a job outside of academia and, and, um, it, it took her a long time to understand that my job isn't just you know, teaching six or nine hours a week for 14 weeks a year. And that, that's it. That's all we do. Right. I mean, research is a majority of what we do. And then we have school service work. So that's, you know, committee. We sit on a number of different committees for the school. Um, you know, we, we head up centers. We, we serve as deans. We we, we do service work for the university in addition to the school. And then there's service to the profession as well. So, you know, we'll hold editorial positions. Um, we have to referee papers. We go to conferences, um, give seminars. So there, there's actually an enormous amount of work um, that we largely control as faculty, right? We, we, we can say no to seminars and conferences and things like this, but most of us, are this high, this self-selected group of people who are just, who are overachievers, who want to do stuff, who love what we do. And so, yeah, we're incredibly busy and it, it just takes a lot of discipline to kind of manage all the pieces so that things don't fall by the wayside. So, you know, we don't get behind on research or committee work or teaching and, and everything stays at the level that Wharton and Penn expects it to, which is, which is really high. Okay, we're glad that you feel that pressure. <laughs> Joking jokes aside, but no. No, way. definitely, definitely. I, I, I can. I really empathize with the students. They're under enormous pressure, 
They've got a million things going on. The expectations now are totally different than what they were when I was in school. You know, I mean, I, I was, <laughs> I told you, not a great student. But um, yeah, I, I think we're very, very sensitive to it. And rightfully so. It's, it's a different time. Well, we'll we'll brace ourselves. We'll just remind ourselves that okay, professors are under pressure to be nice, be be good, be and and, and chill a little for, from our point of view. And also speaking about some of the classes you teach and all of that, one of the classes that I think recently got like a, a huge, I would say, uh, following and as well as a huge amount of publicity is actually your data science for finance class. And I read this article by Insider from it. And then after that, I, I was amazed by how students literally changed their career paths after attending your class or, or at least had that more practical aspects of it. And I think it's a brilliant concept for a class because simply because we live in a world where data science is definitely not going to go away anytime soon. And to, to understand that from a finance point of view is probably uh, much, much more nuanced than just taking two separate classes and, and learning about them individually in a sense. So I, was, I, I love reading about the class in a sense. Um, and it, and obviously you have a huge approval rating. I think students voted, it uh, gave, like scored it 3.46 over four in a sense. So obviously there is a huge, I would say demand for the class as well. Tell me a bit about your process of why did you come up with this class in this first place? How did you come up with the idea for it? And what, and, and what do you think is about this class that people that makes people go crazy for the experience in a sense? So, so I've been doing what is now called data science since I was 19 and in, an undergraduate in college. So that, that's 33 years now. Um, I realize I just dated myself, but okay. <laughs> we'll do the math later, yeah. Yeah, we, we, we can bleep that out. But anyway, um, and so I've been doing empirical analysis and econometrics and statistics on economics and finance questions and even other questions as well, you know, for over 30 years. And what I've seen is that both in academia and in, in the private sector, what, what I've seen is its importance to the private sector has just been growing and growing and growing and growing. It's always been important in finance. But in every other sector aspect of business, its importance has grown and, and finance has been really expanding its, its, its scope and, and elevating its importance to the business. So, you know, several years ago, I, I just thought, why do we not have, we need at Wharton a data science for finance course, which, which is a course that shows students how to make better business decisions in a variety of different settings using data and data analytics. Uh, and so that's why I developed the course. We're coming up on our third year now, and um, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I think it's resonated with a lot of students. It's resonated with a lot of employers who are, who are kind of stuck, Harsha. The, the, the challenge in practice, that, that's another motivation for the course, is one of the biggest challenge in practice is you sort of have these two camps, broadly speaking. You, you've got senior management that, that's client-facing. They're engaging with clients. They need to make decisions. Um, they have traditional backgrounds, MBAs, business training, et cetera. And then you ha have this sort of growing mass of data scientists. So statisticians, computer scientists, mathematicians that are, you know, developing algorithms, working with data, running machine learning models. And in between the two, you have this massive chasm because <laughs> it's very difficult for the two to communicate. It's, it's hard for the, the, the data scientists to understand the business and the challenges that the business is facing. Um, and it's hard for the you know, the, the business leaders to understand the data and the challenges the data scientists face and, and how to exploit that data. And so another motivation for this course was to build what I, you know, what I refer to as data translators, people who can sit in the middle, who can work seamlessly with business leaders and be themselves business leaders, and also easily communicate with data scientists because they've done some of the work 
they know, they understand data, they understand the challenges. And so it's very easy for them to move back and forth between the two worlds. That, that's uh, another big reason for me constructing this course. No, that is a insane, I would say, and very accurate observation. I'm just trying to reflect on all of the people I know who are in kind of, I would say, those two camps. And I realized that even though, like, like I work in a not too big organization, but even though uh, they may be great friends and have great conversations outside of work, just because the finance people and the, the, the data people just never seem to be able to communicate in a way that they understand what the other is trying to do in a sense. So, so no, I, I, I see when you mentioned that, that there is that giant case, like, like, like huge gap between them. And speaking about how you, you shaped the course, it, it was very fascinating when I was reading up about it, about how you use uh, many different real world examples as labs where students actually get to engage and actually get to try things out. There was one story I think uh, where you were mentioning that you had a friend who was a jeweler and who was trying and had a problem and, and kind of like deciding their pricing and you, you essentially had a lab on that. How do you basically take all of this information that you see in the corporate world and synthesize it into a course, into something palatable for students who are learning about it in a sense that they can, that they can use and process and digest for them for, for, in an educational standpoint. Because there is a process between converting that. It's not just taking a problem and throwing it to them. So how do you do that in a sense? Or, or is it exactly you just take the problem and be like, figure it out, kids, in a sense? No, 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 no. That, that's unfair, right? There's just a, a, a lot of... There's, yeah, it, it takes time to learn this process. So, so I'm very fortunate, Wharton's very fortunate to just to have this amazing alumni network that is brilliant, successful, and very engaged with the school. So I'm able to talk to our alumni and they're able to share their experiences, very often share their data uh, that they use to solve business problems that they face. So what I'll do is, you know, I'll sit down with our, you know, one of our alumni and we'll talk about a business problem that they faced and how they use data and analytics to solve it. Uh, I'll then distill that information into, you know, a six to 12 page write up, kind of like a business case, uh, except I call them data labs because it, it sort of. It lays out the, you know, a protagonist, the business challenge they're facing, the setting, the environment, but then the data that they used. So we will give them this write-up. I'll give them the data lab write-up. Then I'll give them access to the data. Sometimes, not always. Sometimes I'll make them actually go get it. You know, I'll make them scrape a site or something like that. And I'll give them a bunch of leading questions to help frame their thought process on how to tackle the problem. Uh, and by answering these questions, which are fairly open-ended and broad and can be answered in a variety of different ways, the students will slowly work their way through the process of addressing the business challenge by performing data analytics. So they get about six to eight, six or seven of these data labs a year in a variety of different contexts. You know, we've got one uh, on M&A, we've got one on you know, pension fund asset management, you know, tactical asset allocation. We've got another one on personal savings. One, as you mentioned, you know, retail, uh, a retail buying or pricing strategy. And so it really exposes them to a bunch of different types of data, a bunch of different types of business settings, di different applications uh, within finance. But, but what's critical is that despite sort of the all the differences in the data and the applications and the problems underneath, there's just this unifying theme of applying the scientific method and the data science workflow that they can always fall back on. And, and I think that's really one of the, one of the key benefits from the course, which is you always have a home base. So no matter what problem you're facing, there are, there's a clear recipe for how to approach the problem. The hard part is figuring out, you know, uh, exactly where the pieces go. That's all. No, I love that, that there is, to an extent, an eternal truth, or I don't say, I've never claimed anything to be an eternal truth, but an eternal underlying kind of 
base that they can always fall back on in solving these challenges. And, and that is very fascinating. And it's great that they actually have that process to shape to shape out that, that flow for them and for them to understand that. So so definitely, I would say for those who haven't signed up or, or like may, you may want to try getting on the waiting list for the next round of the course at the very least. But no, that that is very, very like amazing to hear how it's really solving this gap that you see and how you've actually come across that problem. And I think it's so fascinating how the different courses and the different, I would say, um, the different audiences for these courses uh, basically interact with them. And you're someone who I think has uh, done so much more in, in other than just um, in class, uh, shaping up these phenomenal classes for students, but also taking it a step further and also providing some education in the finance world for other groups from high school students to I know you even did like a Coursera course that you filmed and all of that, which is uh, which, which is amazing. I, I'm a big believer in Coursera. So yeah, definitely great. And um, specifically on, on kind of like um, you mentioned also earlier that being a professor is not just about those moments, but it's about all of these other commitments and all of that. Why is it important for you that more people, especially like in the context of like the high school students you work with, I think you did the global youth program, I think a year or two ago. Why do you think it's important that people understand these things from a young age, that, that, that students, especially in high school, are able to contact, to understand these concepts as they're growing up? Well, the reality is finance touches everyone a lot earlier um, than they think, whether they like to admit, whether we as a society want to admit it or not. And so, you know, the most obvious example is student debt, right? You come out of high school, you borrow to go to school, and before you know it, you graduate with an enormous amount of debt, no way to pay it back, possibly, depending upon your job prospects. And um, that has an incredibly profound effect on your life, not just financially, but psychologically, emotionally, um, you know, physically at times. So, you know, finance affects everyone. Um, and the sooner you can get comfortable with it, the sooner you start using it, the better off you're gonna be in every sense. Uh, you know, f finance, and this is sort of another mission of mine. Finance is really very easy and intuitive, I believe, if, if, if explained properly. You know, we, t we talked about, when we were talking about data science, just the data science class just a minute ago, you know, I mentioned that even though you've got, uh, uh, you know, business applications in all these different settings from, you know, tactical asset allocation, investment management, mergers and acquisitions, uh, consumer retail pricing strategy. Underneath the hood, it's all the same process, but finance is the same way. So whether I'm making a decision mm -hmm. of whether or not to go to college or how to finance college or whether or not I should refinance my mortgage, whether I'm making those personal finance decisions or whether I'm making a, a business decision at my company of whether or not to acquire another company or to build a new plant to expand capacity. The underlying finance, the underlying mechanics are identical. It's all the same. And once you get people to see it and to apply it on a regular basis, which we have to in, in our daily lives, whether personal or, or professional, Finance becomes second nature and it's just not a big deal. It's just like riding a bike. You don't think twice about it. You just do it. it, it re I, 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 I know this for a fact. I really believe it. Now, it took me forever to figure that out. I didn't know that when I was in high school or college or graduate school. I really didn't. I really didn't. It was only after graduate school, several years, you know, that I got married, I bought a house. You know, now I have children and, and all these big issues that I sort of kind of dodged earlier in my life impressed upon me just how important what I was teaching <laughs> was, you know? So, yeah, for, for me, I, I want, I, I think every high school student uh, should, should learn finance 
and be comfortable engaging with it. And it's not hard. And it's just going to make their lives so much easier and better. It, it, it just will. Uh, and, and so I'm working now with some colleagues at Wharton, the dean's office and, and other folk, to really start pushing this out into high schools uh, to get, there's no reason a high school student can't take my core finance course. Really? Yeah. Why not? Hmm. Right. I, I mean, now obviously we can't admit everyone into Wharton, but why can't they have access to that material, that teaching? Right. Yeah. Um, that's, that's Right. We should level the playing field for everyone. We really should. No, and I think that's a very good point. I'm, I, as I said, I'm from Malaysia. I worked a lot with schools, high schools specifically. I worked about 970 schools on the ground through my startup. And finance education is surprisingly something that is not talked about much at all. And it is, it is really, really sad to see that many of these youngsters that I work with specifically, they, they want to get into entrepreneurship. They want to, to, to uh, maybe study something. They want to do this amazing thing for the community. But because they've never really understood those financial like fundamentals, in a sense, when they get a little bit older, when they, when they kind of uh, start making a little bit of money and all of that, it, they revert to kind of their old habit patterns, in a sense. And, 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 and it's just, it doesn't become a way of life to understand those concepts and apply it in their life. So, so it, it, it's something that, that, I, that I've seen in a sense, that, and as a social entrepreneur in the region, I've been trying to do my part in, in bringing finance education, but it is definitely something that, that I would say is essential and is not talked about enough in a way. So definitely, yeah. I'm excited to hear you're doing that, Harsha. I mean, that's just really important. And I think the other thing to emphasize, I think how it's taught is, is every bit as important as getting the information out there because, right, I mean, finance can, can come across, and understandably so, as just this horrifically jargon-laced, heavy language, highly technical, math-intensive subject that can be difficult to connect with the real day-to-day -day problems that we face. And, and so... You know, I, I try to make a, a, a profound effort, just like in my data science class, to not use math as a crutch, but rather to put the applications front and center and say, hey, here you are, you're 18 years old, you're about to go to college, does it make financial sense for you to do it? Right? And then if we teach finance in the context of problems and applications that resonate personally with people, boy, are they much more interested and engaged. And it really starts to sink in, right? No, that that is phenomenal. And and, and I like how you, like, like application seems to be a very big part of, of, of your teaching method in a sense. Rightfully so, you have my full 100% admiration for that in a sense. Whether it's, it's your data science class, whether it's uh, this, this theory of teaching it in a way that's, that, that's applicable. How do you feel like, like, or for educators out there, I do have some, occasionally some educators who watch the show, for educators out there who want to teach financial or anything in the world of finance in a way, whether they're an advisor for a startup or whether they're a teacher trying to educate their students, what do you think they can do as a first step in a sense to begin thinking about finance in a way that can best be translated to an audience who maybe doesn't have any or, or very little financial knowledge or background in a sense. Yeah, so, so one of the challenges we face as educators is putting ourselves in the shoes of the students. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I've been doing this now for a, a very long time, right? Right, uh, probably, you know, 25 years now. It's very easy for me to lose sight of what students know and what they care about. And so I am very conscious, I think we as educators need to be very conscious about what students know and what they care about. Mm -hmm. um, so what I find interesting about finance may not be what students find interesting. And so me forcing that on them is not doing them any good, right? So the challenge comes into communicating the the lessons in a manner that resonates. And for me, I think the most powerful way is to make it personal, 
So, right, make it personal for the students. So when I, I get in front of the Wharton students and, and, you know, they're getting ready to buy a house or they're trying to decide, should they uh, buy a car or lease, you know, lease a car? Or, you know, they're getting ready to move into a consulting job or a banking job. I'm going to pull applications that they are facing or are going to face in, you know, the reasonable future so that immediately they know, I got to know this. I mean, this is really important. Um, I, I think that's, cri that's critical, making it resonate and personal for them and doing it in a way that doesn't forget that they, they're maybe seeing this for the first time, right? No, but I definitely agree. I was someone who was incredibly finance adverse. Um, I'm actually in the College of Arts and Science, so, so well, like a confession. But I think being just surrounded by people who truly love finance and, and who truly, at least at Warden, who truly see its applications in different aspects beyond my imagination, beyond my prejudice against it, in a sense, has really made me, to at least an extent, love the aspects of it that, and see the value of it, in a sense. So definitely, I think that the ability to relate the things that we're learning into the actual applications in our lives make a huge difference, in a sense. For, yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 please. No, I was just, for all of the people out there who maybe they're, they're a student right now, or they are looking at, uh, or maybe they don't go to Penn, sadly. I, like, why, like, maybe some of them do watch the show. So, and they're thinking about how do they plan out the rest of their lives? How do they think about investments? All of these big, scary things that come with transitioning out of being students, in a sense. What do you think is the most important thing that they have to think about from a finance perspective that maybe they're not even looking at right now? Well, well so a couple things related and then some specifics. So for first and first, you can't know what's going to happen. Just accept it. Um, don't fight it. You, you may have your, your planned course in life laid out nine times out of 10. That's not going to be the actual course you take. So that's okay. That's okay. That doesn't mean you don't plan. It means you plan and then you plan for other stuff to happen right? Um, okay. So financially, what can you do? When I look back on my life, I, I think taking more risk earlier on when you're younger, you have less concerns, you have less sort of obligations, be it familial or, or professional, T taking more chances is it's a good thing. Taking some risk. So, so one of the fundamental tenets of finance, is you want more reward, you have to take more risk. Right. So um, taking more risks, taking some chances, that's a good thing. But always, always plan, always, always having some semblance of a financial plan is a good idea. In other words, start saving early. And if that means just putting in, you know, 50 bucks a month, 25 bucks a month into some savings, but retirement, do it. Compounding is unbelievably powerful. Right. <laughs> You know, I also wouldn't worry too, ma too much about, oh, you know, should I go in now? Is the market going to go down? Should I wait a sec? This notion of market timing, unless you are a professional investor whose job is 24-7 to monitor the market or, or trade, but whatever it is, just put money in there and don't look at it. Just keep putting money in and don't look at it. And then stay away from really high interest rate debt, credit card debt. That's, that's, just, that's just terrible. I learned that the hard way. I remember I ran up a big credit card bill after I graduated undergrad, you know, just didn't pay any attention to it. And before I knew it, I had to liquidate my, actually I actually had to liquidate my 401k from my employer to pay it off so I could just get rid of it. Uh, you know, I didn't want to have any debt going into grad school. So um, being disciplined about high interest rate, that doesn't mean debt is bad. It just means you have to be disciplined. So saving, controlling debt, uh, those things will serve you well. All right. We spoke about so many things. And honestly, I think each of them was such a gem in its own way that I really can't. I normally pick what was my favorite takeaway, but I cannot for today's session because I, I, I really liked all those different conversations that we had, whether it was you know, creating those, uh, how you actually come up with that bridge between practice and, and, and academia, whether it's working with students, whether it's this final advice in a sense for students, I think all of it has lots of merit. 
So maybe I shall ask you in a sense as our final question for today's session. What are your words of wisdom for all of those watching who want to get into a career in the finance sector, whether that's uh, deciding between a, uh, like the world of academics or whether it's pursuing something in the corporate line? You've seen them all in a way. So where do they even start in, in, in learning this? Like, Is there something specific they should be focusing on? Is Are you an expert in what the demand of the next couple of years is going to be? Or what do you advise in a sense? So, so... First, finance is so broad in terms of mm -hmm. applications and where it resides. I don't think there's sort of a blanket statement there. If I, if I had to think of sort of general characterizations for how different areas of finance find talent, so to speak, um, it's really from a broad cross-section nowadays. So, you know... They'll pull from Wharton, obviously, but they'll also pull, pull from the, the quantitative fields, which they like. They like computer science, math, physics, statistics, engineering, because a lot of finance looks at quantitative fields and say, okay, these people are quantitative, quantitatively uh, tooled up, very technically tooled up. We'll teach them the finance along the way. A lot of companies... Good so, you know, that that is a good thing. But 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 that doesn't mean they limit themselves to just people who can do high level math or think very quantitatively. They'll pull, you know, they'll pull from the liberal arts, people who are creative thinkers. Um, you know, maybe that's a philosophy major who has an amazing ability to speak and write and communicate clearly someone I want in front of a client. Right. Or someone I want engaging with other people on my team because they're going to force me to think a little bit more deeply. When I think, you know, th that sort of is a non-answer. It's like, you know, they'll pull from everywhere. Yeah. But I, think, I think what finance is really good at, at, at identifying is just talented pe people with passion, people with a real passion. And, and I'll never forget this one. Um, one of our alumni who is the head of a. Um, who is the head of uh, a very large hedge fund. I remember having lunch with him and him telling me the story about how he hired uh, someone who didn't have any finance background, who wasn't a data, who wasn't a computer scientist or anything. It was a liberal arts student who was really interested in basketball. And so what, what this student did is they did this huge deep dive statistical analysis of basketball, kind of like a money ball for basketball. Mm -hmm. And the student presented this to our, our, um, and our alumni was just blown away by the passion, the depth, the thought, the creativity that went into this basketball exercise that boom, hired, hired him right on the spot, right? You know, that, that's what, that, those are the kind of people I think employers really want, the people who are passionate about what it is they're doing. Okay. Very, very well answered. That was not a non-answer, by the way. I thought it was a good answer. <laughs> okay. Like towards that at okay. the beginning, I was like, mm, but no, you, you saved it. It was great. You had me in the first half. But thank you so much for this session, Louis. Um, I really appreciate you taking the time. And I think that you spoke about so many things that are so important for people to listen to that I really, really do hope we can get you back from the show another time. And I really appreciate the time that you took today as part of today's episode. And I just hope you had as much fun as I had in today's episode. Yeah, thank you so much, Harsha. I think this is a wonderful outlet. I appreciate you giving me the time and I appreciate what you're doing. So keep it up. Thank you. And with that, I guess our episode draws to a close to our audience. Thank you guys for joining us and we'll see you again next Thursday at 10 p.m. ET as always. And we appreciate you joining in as well. Bye. You're listening to Changing Reality. Changing Reality where we bend reality all across the world. Only on WQHS Radio.